Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Democrat state lawmaker Jasmine Clark talks about a bill that would include teaching consent within sex education curriculum in Georgia's public schools. Plus, besides governor, there are other statewide races drawing a wide field of candidates, Democrats, Republicans and independents. Political strategist Fred Hicks joins us to discuss who's running for what office and what their chances are. All those conversations coming up in a moment. But first, this Governor Brian Kemp says he wants to provide one point six billion dollars in tax refunds to Georgians this year. Kemp announced the plans during the annual Eggs and Issues Breakfast held by the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. And this is where top lawmakers lay out their plans for the year's legislative session. Last fiscal year, because we kept Georgia open and fought alongside you all in this room to keep businesses and communities afloat, the state collected a record budget surplus. I believe that when government takes in more money than it needs, surplus funds should be sent back to the hardworking men and women to keep our state moving. Because I believe that's your money, not the government's. The governor says the refunds would amount to $250 for individual filers and $500 to those filing jointly. Kemp also says he wants to ensure the HOPE scholarship program covers at least 90 percent of tuition for recipients. Both the tax and scholarship plans would be part of the governor's amended budget for the 2022 fiscal year, which, of course, still needs the approval of state lawmakers. In other news, the head of Atlanta Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says there incre- is increasing evidence that the Omicron variant of the coronavirus isn't making people as sick as the Delta strain. But Dr. Rochelle Walensky says Omicron is so contagious, it's still causing lots of problems. The sudden and steep rise in cases due to Omicron is resulting in unprecedented daily case counts, sickness, absenteeism, and strains on our healthcare system. The risk of hospitalization remains low, especially among people who are up to date on their COVID vaccines. However, the staggering rise in cases, over 1 million new cases each day, has led to a high number of total hospitalizations. Walensky went on to say a recent study from California shows people infected with Omicron didn't get as sick, sick as those infected with the Delta, but that study has not been peer reviewed. Now, the CDC says Omicron now accounts for some 98 percent of all coronavirus infections in the nation. Meanwhile, Georgia's health system is acutely feeling the strain of the Omicron variant. Our own Susanna Capaluto has more. During a State Board of Health meeting Tuesday, Public Health Director Dr. Kathleen Toomey said she was amazed by the high transmissibility of the Omicron variant, which currently causes about 25,000 new infections each day in Georgia. Even our best planning probably could not have predicted how quickly this would spread and the, and the devastation that it would cause because of the ease of transmission and the fact that so many healthcare workers were becoming ill. Health officials say because of high case numbers, hospitals in metro Atlanta have more COVID patients now than during previous COVID waves. The state is beefing up booster vaccinations, has opened more testing sites, and is trying to get as many rapid tests as possible in hopes to bring down infections. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. A man who was punched and kicked in the head by two Gwinnett police officers during a traffic stop in 2017, has reached a settlement with Gwinnett County. Demetrius Hollins filed a federal lawsuit in September alleging the stop was unjustified and that the officers used excessive force. His attorneys announced the settlement yesterday. The officers were fired a day after the traffic stop when a video of the incident surfaced. 
And the family of a DeKalb County man killed by police early this year continued to call on the officer who shot him to be fired. The family of Matthew Zodic Williams says they delivered a petition with more than 38,000 signatures to DeKalb government officials today. It calls for Sergeant Devon Perry to lose his job. Williams reportedly was outside his own home where family members believe the usually 35-year-old was having a mental health crisis. A neighbor called police saying Williams looked suspicious. And finally, the University of Georgia will continue to celebrate the national champion Bulldogs with the parade, with the parade and ceremony on Saturday. Now, all you folks who weren't fans, but now you are, I guess y'all can go. The parade in Athens started starts at 1230 with a formal program scheduled for two o'clock in Stamp Sanford Stadium. Tickets are free and available to students and season ticket holders now, but you have to do it online. The general public can grab any remaining tickets starting on Thursday. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Close Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE out of Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. In 2018, then-Governor Nathan Deal signed Senate Bill 401 into law. The measure known as Aaron's Law requires students in kindergarten through ninth, eight, through ninth, eighth grade to be taught about sexual abuse. However, the curriculum is not required as of now to include instructions or even cons- cons- conversations about consent. Well, State Representative Jasmine Clark, a Democrat from Gwinnett County, wants to change that. She's pushing legislation this session that would mandate students learn about the role of consent in preventing sexual abuse. And she joins me now to discuss this. Representative Clark, welcome back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too, Rose. Thank you for having me. Let's begin here because I want to give you an opportunity to thoroughly describe what House Bill 857 includes. Absolutely. So House Bill 857 is just uh, changing the current law around sex education here in Georgia. It changes the requirements for sex education, not by subtracting anything, but by adding consent Mm -hmm. be taught to students in an age appropriate manner um, in our uh, Georgia schools. And um, it is something that I, I think Um, It's one of those things where I wonder why we already are not required to teach these things, especially, you know, after the Me Too movement and just with so many things going on in our world, it seems like a no brainer that we would want to make sure that we are equipping our our students with the information to have healthy relationships and also to understand what is consent and what is not consent when it comes to sexual relationships. Oh, Representative Clark, I have two emails already, but we'll get to those in a moment. (laughs) Uh, Here's here's what's interesting, because my research reveals that teaching consent in public schools is not mandated in all states. Does your bill mirror any specific state that we can talk about here in a moment? Absolutely. So uh, consent education is not new. Uh, We are not reinventing the wheel when we introduce this here in Georgia. It is actually uh, a part of the law in eight different states, plus the District of Columbia. These states include uh, Democratic run states, as well as some Republican run states. Uh, You know, it has been uh, passed by Democratic legislatures along with Republican legislatures, and it has been signed by Democratic governors and Republican governors. So it's not a partisan thing. And this is not something, you know, that I just thought of on on my own. Mm -hmm. I will not take credit for that. This is something that we've actually seen across the country. Let me ask you this, because even the definition of consent varies from state to state. Uh, And our research shows that California, Delaware, Oregon and South Carolina name either consent, quote, or affirmative consent as part of their sex education requirements. But offer limited detail. Colorado, Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, and the District of Columbia 
provide a more detailed definition of consent. Now, in Illinois, their measure requires age-appropriate consent education and clarifies, quote, I'm reading here, that consent must be freely given and can be withdrawn and is not implied by consent to a previous activity or with a different person and cannot be given by a person who's intoxicated or asleep. Let me ask you this, Representative Clark, how do you define consent and is this in the measure? So for this law, because I am dealing uh, with a legislature that's a little bit less than friendly when it comes to uh, approaching sex education, um, I have not defined consent, but uh, the Illinois definition that you just uh, read out is very much what I would hope that we would see in the curricula if we were to implement this here in Georgia. But by not defining it, we also uh, leave room for you know our school boards to find the best uh, sex education curriculum that works for them that does include these requirements um, as far as teaching about consent. Um, you know, there is a definition for consent. Um, affirmative consent uh, is, uh, it's, it's, it's not one of those things where it's uh, too fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you know, there is such thing as consenting and there is such thing as not consenting. And well, that's what we are hoping to teach in um, our curriculum. Why leave Georgia. it up to the school boards and why not have a state law? That oh, clearly well, so defines, it will be a state law. I mean, that, um, that, but that includes the definition of consent like the other states. So that's a really good question. And I think it boils down to what can we get Um, done here in Georgia? What is something that I can reach across the aisle to my colleagues and, um, you know, and ask them to really consider this and really, you know, take this bill seriously, because this is something that I I really think can pass here in Georgia. But also here in Georgia, we put a lot of emphasis on um, local control. Um, Now, you know, that's arguable in other instances, but uh, when it comes to other education bills that have passed in the legislature, um, some of those have been vetoed by our current governor because he felt that it took away uh, some of the control from our school boards. And so, you know, I feel like this is a good first step because right now consent is not required at all. The only real requirements that we have here in Georgia is that you teach about abstinence, uh, peer pressure, and also about AIDS. Mm-hmm. But other than that, uh, there's really not, a, there's nothing that says that we must teach consent. So I think we start there, but you're right. I would love to see a day where we really truly define exactly what it is that we want um, to be taught so that we make sure that across the state, everyone is getting good quality education and um, when we're talking about consent education. Well, you can't even get school districts all to agree on whether or not kids and, and educators should wear a mask. Exactly. Well, that's and that's the issue. That is the issue. And that is why, you know, making a law that is uh, uh, more more stringent um almost it's almost like it's doa when it comes to getting hearings and actually starting the conversation around this i've met with the chair of the education committee about these things because i do think that this is something that we can actually get done and again i believe this is something that we can get get done with support across the aisle i do think we can get bipartisan support for this but we have to uh be I guess, realistic in uh, what can and can't pass in the current political environment here in Georgia. I have a listener that says, shouldn't this be left up to the parents or caregivers? Well, so right now, parents and caregivers already have the option to uh, opt out of sex education if they do not like the curriculum that is currently being taught. But right now, sex education is already mandated in Georgia. So Mm -hmm. again, I am not mandating sex education. I am just saying that we should require that consent be taught as a part of a curriculum that is already mandatory across the state. The voice you hear is State Representative Jasmine Clark, a Democrat from Gwinnett County. And we're talking about legislation this session that would mandate students learn about the role of consent and preventing sexual abuse as it will be part of sex education. Let's talk about that because the Georgia Department of Human Services says in 2020, some 8% of all the 10,000 confirmed instances of child abuse involve sexual assault. You believe that 
teaching children about consent could obviously change and, and, and reduce those numbers. Absolutely. The data shows that when you teach affirmative consent, especially when you teach it during adolescence, that it will um, have an impact of reducing sexual assault later on in life. And when we talk about reducing sexual assault, I'm talking about being both a perpetrator of sexual assault, mm -hmm. as well as being a victim to sexual assault. When you teach about consent, you equip people to know when it, when it is okay to continue in a sex act, but also you equip people to know when something is not right, when this is not okay, and what is being done to me is not consensual. And so it really does empower our, our children, our youth with the information they need to have healthy relationships throughout their life. This would be what age group do you think this should start when we talk about consent? Well, I actually, so most states will say we start talking about sex education in middle and high school, mm -hmm. um, but research actually shows that you should start introducing the concept of healthy relationships, even in elementary school, before students are even really kind of thinking about, you know, sexual relationships. It's important. And the, the truth is sexual abuse doesn't just start in middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually really important for even our youngest to understand when it's not okay for certain people to do certain things to their body. Have you looked at actual curriculum from these other states? Uh, have you read the, the, the context, the language? Have you looked at textbooks or, to, to see how this is being taught in other states? No, most of my research has been focused on the, you know, peer reviewed research around this topic. I have not delved uh, directly into uh, the specific curriculum in different state uh, curricula in different states. Uh, however, uh, I do think this is something, again, mm -hmm. uh, states across the country, no matter what uh, type of uh, partisan um, leadership they have, states across the country do agree that it's a good idea for people to understand what consent is. And um, this is a, a growing trend. This is something that has uh, been, um, you know, implemented uh, state by state over the last few years, because people are starting to realize, like I said, after the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. that maybe there is a gap in the education or the information that is available to our students. And we really need to be careful because sexual assault is something that follows you, whether you do it or whether you're a victim to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that follows you for the rest of your life. And we should note that Oregon, out in Oregon, at these standards, they begin in elementary school with teaching something about personal boundaries. And then it progresses over middle and, and high school when they're talking about consent. Uh, would you so elementary school, you said, but what grade level? I'm curious. Well, that, that's a really good question. And I think uh, the way it is worded in the bill, it does say age appropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think there are age appropriate ways to start, even in kindergarten, again, with talking about boundaries, healthy relationships. Because the truth of the matter is, uh, when it comes to sexual assault and being a victim of sexual assault, um, uh, it's not, it doesn't start at a certain age. Mm -hmm. People who perpetuate sexual assault don't wait until you're in second grade to do it. And so students, our children need to understand these boundaries, again, in a very age appropriate manner, but in ways so that they are empowered to know when something is wrong or something is not exactly right with the relationships that they're having with certain individuals. And because now in Georgia, and this goes back to 2019, because you filed a bill to change how we teach about HIV and AIDS, but now we know that's included, then I, that gives you some optimism about this bill, does it? Or what? concerns do you have? Uh, so uh, when I filed the, the very first bill I filed when I was first elected in 2018, uh, really focused on making sex education medically accurate here in Georgia currently is not required to be medically accurate. And unfortunately, um, we see the consequences of that in certain school systems where the uh, curriculum that is used really focuses 100% on abstinence, but not just on abstinence. It really focuses on um, teaching girls 
uh, that their uh, body is ruined if they are uh, if they engage in sex. And I guess the the issue with that is number one, that's not medically accurate. Mm-hmm. And number two, that's more of a um, what I would consider values based or honestly religious religion based method of teaching sex education instead of just sticking to the science and sticking to you know what um, medical professionals. Uh, have uh, deemed appropriate mm-hmm. for sex education. And so my bill talked about making uh, sex education medically accurate mm-hmm. and as well updated the word AIDS to HIV, because I also think it's really important that we use the proper terminology when we're talking about these topics. And we really should be talking about HIV, which is the virus that can lead to AIDS instead of just talking about AIDS, which again is more of an end stage kind of terminal uh, consequence of HIV that has gone um, either untreated or has um, gone on for a very long time. So I think uh, that's important. Uh, that is a separate bill, mm-hmm. however, from this consent bill. And what did you learn a, from, a what, world, let uh, me ask you this though, what did you learn from the challenges with that bill? in 2019 that you hope you you won't have to encounter this time? Well, that's a really good question because I learned a lot. Number one, I learned as a freshman legislator that even if you have a really great idea that people can agree to um, in the hallways and in, you know, you know, in confidence, uh, when it comes down to getting things passed uh, in the Georgia state legislature, it takes a lot more than that. So um, I think we all agree that uh, having medically accurate sex education is a good idea. However, that bill never got a hearing. And it did not get a hearing Mm -hmm. in the first session that I dropped it. It did not get a hearing in the second session that I dropped it. And um, a lot of those hurdles are mostly political because, again, it's not about the concept or the content of the bill because most people can agree. However, some people worry that when you start adding medically accurate into um, the the definition of how we teach uh, sex education in Georgia, that they're going to have to pull back on some of these uh, more egregious um, abstinence only um, sex education curricula curricula that um, really do a disservice to our students Mm -hmm. um, and again really focus on the wrong things when it comes to teaching sex education Mm -hmm. and so that's that's been the biggest hurdle well also too do you think for some folks when we talk about sexual education and sexual health that people sort of they have a different something well first of all the definitions are completely different but for some folks they don't see it that way and is it hard to get lawmakers just to engage with it because for some just the mere mere mention of sex sex some folks clam up i mean that's just let's be clear i'm not saying anything that's not new and some folks may even turn off this segment but it is what it is i mean but for some folks just they think this should be something that is comes from the parents or the caregiver so you are absolutely right. So the very interesting thing about this question. I mean, do you remember when that, your parents talked to you about, I mean, I, this is for oh everybody, yes, not, you, not you personally, <laughs> not you personally, but we can all remember when our parents had that conversation with us and either it was uncomfortable and weird or it was like, you know, don't do this and go outside and play basketball. Yeah. Which is pretty and, much what and, I got. <laughs> and that's the that, and that's the thing. That's why we have, you know, uh, that's why we do teach this in our schools. And again, this is something that was mandatory way before I was even thinking about getting elected or uh, running for office. So this is not something that I have, in, uh, you know, asked for when I say that we have to teach sex, edu- sex education in our curriculum. But what I do uh, say is that if we're going to teach something, we need to have it science based and medically accurate. Um, but yeah, it but can folks be don't even agree on what science representative Clark, you know that. Oh, I, I absolutely. That's the other question. So, you know, some would argue abstinence only is medically accurate. And the truth is abstinence is a method of preventing pregnancy and preventing um, sexually transmitted infections and sexually transmitted disease. However, the the truth of the matter is, what is our objective 
of sex education? Is it just to prevent pregnancy or is our objective to actually inform our youth about what is going on with their bodies, what is going on with them, how to have healthy relationships, things like that. And so if, if that is the, the objective, if you, if you analyze your objectives, then you find that abstinence only um, sex education just does not do the trick. It just doesn't. It does not meet um, the needs of our students, especially our students in um, uh, the 21st century. And when you're talking about consent, you feel that this is something that definitely needs to be added. Let me ask you this. You mentioned this is this should be a measure that we have bipartisan support. You got some Republicans that are have uh, agreed to support this. I have not gotten any of my Republican colleagues to sign on to this yet, but I'm still working on it. So, you know, I pre-filed this back in November, mm -hmm. right before the holidays. Um, I do plan on having some conversations. Uh, again, I'm going to have those conversations with the chair of the education committee. I'm going to have those conversations with people. I had a Republican that signed on to the medically accurate um, sex education bill before. He wasn't in the top six, but he did sign on. Mm -hmm. I will reach back out to him because he has um, authored legislation around sex abuse as well. And I think uh, my Republican colleagues can agree that we want to do all we can to prevent sexual assault, and especially amongst our youth. And so I hope this is a, a bridge. I hope this is, um, you know, something that we can all agree on, something that we can do, and we don't have to fight about it. I understand that you're also working on reproductive rights and gun safety bills as well. You're busy. Well, a lot of y'all are busy. Okay. It's an election year, too. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Election years bring about a lot of different types of bills and a lot of uh, bills that, um, you know, can be a little um, extra or extreme if we want to be, uh, you know, more blatant about it. But uh, I have uh, I also have on my legislative agenda uh, ways to make sure that we have responsible gun ownership, ways to ensure that we uh, protect um, reproductive rights here in Georgia. Um, you know, I'm also uh, considering some legislation around climate change solutions, things like that. These are things that when I talk to my constituents, these are things that they care about. This is what they come to me with. And so my um, legislative agenda really is uh, people powered. It truly is. And it really comes from my constituency. Finally, you were at Atlanta University Center um, yesterday. You heard President Biden speak about voting rights. I'm just curious your reaction to the president's speech. Oh, I, I thought he uh, hit all the right notes. You know, I still would love to hear the plan. So, you know, I think that was the one thing that I was waiting to hear that I didn't exactly hear. But as far as everything else that he said, he had the right tone. He said all the right things and he was clear. We have to get voting rights legislation passed in this country in order to save our democracy. It is just that important. And history uh, will record where people stood in this time of um, in this time of need. Democratic State Representative Jasmine Clark represents House District 108, covering the Lilburn and Mountain Park areas of Gwinnett County. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I was not asking you to personally share your story about your... Somebody sent me an email. Tomorrow's <laughs> being nosy. I was just throwing the question out to, to the public, to everyone. I mean, if folks want to share that story of having that conversation with their parents, go right ahead, but... <laughs> Hey, it, it is what it is. It it's is awkward. what it it's, it's hard. It's hard. I, I teach. I teach anatomy, and it was still hard for me to have that conversation with my kids. It's hard. How old were they when you had that conversation? Oh, I would say um, ten. About the time when I realized that they were starting to think about these things. Sure. That's when I was like, "It's time to have the talk." All right, Representative Clark. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As a listener just sent me something, I am still waiting for my birds and the bees talk from my mommy. Okay, I get it. Raise your hand if you're running for a statewide office in November. While Georgia's gubernatorial race has been making all the headlines, there are some other races as well. And this week, a surprise as Democrat Charlie Bailey switched his candidacy from Secretary of State to Lieutenant Governor. 
We'll tell you why in a moment. So how are these statewide races looking so far? Joining me now is Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks to talk about it all. And we should know Closer Look's other regular contributor, Julianne Thompson, was unable to join us. She's a little bit under the weather, but will return. So, Fred, play nice. I will do my best. Hey, Rose, how are you? Hey, Happy New Year. How's the dog? Happy New Year. Yesterday was his birthday, so he's a big one slash seven. Happy birthday, Iroh. Oh, Jesus. For a, a man that didn't even like dogs, I tell you, you've just come. We we have watched your progression on this program from a man who didn't like dogs to now you're like this very just it's 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 rather it's kind of cute, but it's also just like weird. You know, it's just, you know, it was you got the dog on Instagram and Facebook and all kinds of stuff. I posted his happy birthday to him yesterday. Okay, that's enough. Let's let's get to the conversation. (laughs) Did you buy a cake for him, too, Fred? So we did do this like doggy ice cream thing. So we did do some stuff like that. My my senior producer, Sam Whitehead, is laughing. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, everyone should get a cavapoo and then you'd understand. All right. Let's begin with this. Uh, news from Charlie <laughs> Bailey. A surprise this week. Yes, very much so. You know, the uh, the field for lieutenant governor was has been pretty stagnant or has been pretty fixed for several months now, featuring three state representatives on the Democratic side. And then one person uh, was Governor Zell Miller's grandson. And so this has been pretty, pretty uh, uneventful for the last little while. And then Sunday night, the day before Sunday, the day before his session started, Charlie Bailey, who ran for lieutenant governor in 2018, I mean, ran for attorney general attorney in 2018, general. Mm-hmm. right, was running again. He was in a highly contested primary with uh, state senator Jen Jordan. And uh, Sunday, he announced that he's switching over from AG to LG. Now, according to the Associated Press, Bailey said prominent Democrats asked him to make the switch. What do you make of that, Frederick? What's your your reaction to that? You know, I think that's very interesting. Um, Number one, uh, he's saying what he needs to say, uh, because you have to give some sort of explanation for why you are making the switch. Uh, Number two, you need to say that because you have to signal to your donors that there's support for you. Because when you switch races like that or switch seats, you have to go back to your donors and get their explicit permission to use that money in the new race. You just can't transfer it over. Uh, But then number three, if true, I think that's also very interesting and potentially problematic because, again, you have three Democratic legislators um, who are already in that race, already declared as candidates. And if there are people within the party who are pushing someone else over elected and, and active members of the party, that's going to be interesting. That could create some real problems within within the caucus. Well, and that's what I want to ask you. Why do you think, and this is through your lens, or if you have heard, if it is indeed true what Bailey told the Associated Press, and, and we all believe that he did say this, that why would the Democrats then want to push him into this race where you have other folks? And let's be really clear, too, a lot of folk of color, you know. Yes. Um, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if true, then it was it was seemed to me that it feels like there's a little bit of engineering on the, along the ticket. So what you did not have was a clearly established Democratic white male. So, you know, we know that Senator Warnock is an African-American male. He's on the ballot. You know that Stacey Abrams is African-American woman. She's on the ballot. You know that you have Jen Jordan and uh, who now who will be the oh, represent the white women on the ballot. You have in the Secretary of State's race, you have uh, B. Wynn, who's received a lot of support. She does, it should be noted, she does have opposition uh, from former Fulton County Chairman John Eves. I think maybe one other person in that race. So, but if if Representative Wynn emerges, you'd have an Asian American representative in that seat. And then you have, um, you have black, another black men, black men running for, for other seats. So what you did not have was a white man. And so if this is indeed the case, then this would seem like there's a bit of engineering looking forward to November to try to have a little bit of everything on the Democratic ballot. And, of course, the thought process is that with Stacey Abrams at the top of that ticket, who's running for governor, obviously, but will she endorse anybody, do you think? Well, that's a great question. Um, And in the primary, you know, typically party rules prevent – the party itself from endorsing, and this is true on the Republican or the Democratic side, for the for the party itself from endorsing in a primary when more than one person is in the race. Now, that doesn't mean that individuals can't get in there. Mm-hmm. And so there is certainly the potential and there are rumors, speculation that 
that she will endorse. But again, I think that creates a bit of problems because you have three, you have three African-Americans who are running um, in that seat already. And one other thing I want to say is that, you know, the Democratic Party tried this back in 2014 with Jason Carter, mm-hmm. uh, in 2010 with Roy Barnes, that we need to have a white male out there if we're going to attract white men. And that did not work well. Democrat, the Democrats have consistently received about 20 to 22 percent of the of the white male vote statewide. So that would be a little troubling for me if, if this is an attempt at engineering because it, ha- it hasn't worked. And again, I think it smacks up a little bit of disrespect for the candidates who are already out there. I want to jump over to uh, the for lieutenant governor on the Republican side for a second, because obviously, you know, with uh, Jeff Duncan not seeking election, but you've got you got Burt Jones, who's up in there. I, uh, I believe Mac McGregor, uh, Butch Miller, I believe is still in it. And then Jean, uh, G- if I'm saying her name correctly, Jan um, Seaver. Uh, any thoughts about uh, is Burt Jones, is Senator Burt, is he the I guess the one to watch in this race here? I think so, because he has President Trump's uh, support. And what we do know from, we talked about this last time, from the research that I've been conducting and uh, their published research, that uh, Trump's endorsement in the Republican primary is worth anywhere between 20 and 25, maybe even as high as 26 points. So that certainly would give Burt Jones the, the advantage um, over the rest of the field in that race. So he is the one to watch. But the battle between him and Butch Miller, because Butch Miller has a lot of, uh, he has the ability to raise a lot of money, has, mm-hmm. has his own money. Uh, so that makes it very interesting. And Butch Miller has been very active in the whole stop the steal thing. So what what our research has found is that Trump's endorsement is worth about 25, you know, like I said, 20 to 26 points. Mm-hmm. But if you within a Republican primary, but also if you have aligned yourself with him and the stop the steal movement, that is also still worth between 15 and 20 points. So the net difference, you know, is is is, is 10 or so points. Um, so it's not, I guess my point in that is that because Butch Miller has been so aligned with Trump, even though President Trump is supporting uh, Burt Jones in a down ballot race, mm-hmm. uh, it, it might not be a lost cause for, uh, for Senator Miller. Well, but there are some, but listen, as we move to Secretary of State on the Republican side, because we know that uh, former President Donald Trump will not be supporting Brad Raffersberger. Um, that's <laughs> a given. By the way, did you hear the interview with President? President Trump and Steve Inskeep from NPR. Very interesting. Uh, President Trump, uh, he hung up on Steve Inskeep, but that's... Really? Are you surprised? Uh, just, just go listen to I it. Mean, uh, let's, talk about Georgia Sec- <laughs> let's talk about Georgia Secretary of State for a moment. I uh, got some folks in there uh, challenging Brad Raffensperger. How do you see this on the Republican side? So I think um, Jody Heiss is probably the person to watch for sure with that, given that he has President Trump's support, given that um, it looks like from all the published poll, public polling I've seen that uh, faithful Republican primary voters are really upset with uh, Secretary Raffensperger for not doing more around the election. We've all but think, Fred, think listen, twenty, and I know this is it's a broken record, folks. Forgive me. Twenty twenty two. You're still telling us that folks are still buying into the election was stolen. From President Trump, there is still a base out there that believes that and that is a base that can actually help propel a winner in in, in these races, because if they're supporting that lie, that's what you're telling. Listen, listen, Poland says that over 70 percent of Republican voters believe that the election was stolen. I know. Um, in Georgia. And so and and to the point of that, I think that's why the lieutenant governor is not running for reelection. And we talk about listen. A, a primary voter on either side of the aisle is very different than a general election only voter. Your primary election voter is someone who really drinks the tea, whether you're on the Democratic side or the Republican side. They are more ardent, they're more strident, they tend to be involved more in, in party politics, and they really, really, really want their person to win. And so when you get into the general election, those are people who vote out of civic duty. Uh, they tend not to be as as partisan. And so when we're talking about a primary, um, yeah, there absolutely, I think there's a, a fair number of people on the Republican primary side who, and as a matter of fact, our research that we've conducted shows that that's about 28% of the people on the Republican primary side for whom this is a primary key deciding issue. Mm-hmm. And so for someone like, um, someone like Representative Heiss, starting with at least 28% of the vote, is a nice starting point. And that means that, you know, Secretary Raffensperger 
is going to have to figure out. I mean, those are people he's just never going to get. So for him, he has two choices. He can hope that you have uh, to flood the primary with more moderate voters or hope that um, that the far right side stays out. But, you know, President Trump has been very intentional in creating a slate on the Republican side from governor, uh, Senate, all the way down. So they're going to work really hard on the GOTV side of things. And so are we to believe then that for those who have been endorsed by President, by former President Donald Trump, that all we're going to keep hearing is that the election was stolen. That's going to be the bulk of their campaign. That's going to be at the core of what they tell folks. They ain't going to talk about nothing else. Well, it has been the core of it. I mean, they are, in essence, running on breaking the law. Like the governor and the current secretary of state have both said they they did everything they could within the law. And, and Representative Heiss is saying, well, that wasn't enough. And and so they are running on breaking the law, which is interesting to me. And whether or not you want to see it that way, it is, it is indeed the platform. Now, the other thing we know is that uh, former President Trump really requires that to be a part of your platform. We saw that with Senator Perdue and Senator Leffler just a year ago. So it, it will be a key part. Now, something we should note, because uh, as of late, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has said it could take some months, but she's still considering whether or not to bring charges against uh, former President Donald Trump. If indeed that does happen and she gets a grand jury, might that have play any role, you think, at all, Fred? So the people for whom who will be impacted by that are people who are what I again I call the traditional Republicans. Um, you know, your Ronald Reagan, first George Bush, that's Bush forty one Republicans who really who stayed home last year instead of voting for Donald Trump. And so if that number can grow, then that can definitely impact the election. It might also impact some French Democrats. There are a lot of Democratic voters who are unhappy with the party and what's been happening in the country for the last 12, 13 months or so. And so that kind of action might actually uh, move them to say, you know what, I was going to sit this one out, but mm-hmm. I got to get involved with it. So it can certainly be a tool. Uh, let's jump. I want to jump right, go back to the race for attorney general right now. Senator Jen Jordan is the only Democrat in that field against incumbent Chris Carr. Um, do you see any possibility of an upset there. So it's, that's going to be a really interesting race because the attorney general Carr, the, the big challenge he's going to have in a general election is that he was the head of the RGA and uh, the Republican or the, uh, the sorry, the National Nash- Republican Attorney General's Association. Mm-hmm. And so that organization sent out the nasty calls last year and they took a very public stance that the election should not be certified and and they pushed the stop the steal narrative and so he's tried to distance himself from that he resigned and things of that nature but that's going to be a real problem for him and uh he can only go but so far mm-hmm. now by himself and based on his history and and all i think most people would have considered the attorney general a uh, to be a moderate but um that's going to be a noose around his his campaign in the fall, and I, I fully expect that uh, Senator Jordan will make make a big deal about that. So the big question when we think of, when we look at it to November is number one, what kind of drop off would you have from the top of the ticket that is Senate governor mm-hmm. to these down ballot races? In 2018, we saw a huge drop off between governor and lieutenant governor. As a matter of fact, superintendent of school and some of the other seats received more votes than mm-hmm. the, than the lieutenant mm-hmm. governor, and I think that was the basis of Sarah Riggs Amico's lawsuit. Um, so what do you see with the, the drop off? Mm-hmm. And then will you see any kind of crossover? So, OK, maybe I'm going to vote because I really believe that Brian Kemp should be governor, but I don't like the stop the steal thing. And Burt Jones is the candidate. So I'm going to vote for whoever emerges on the Democratic side. So, you know, because of this, we might actually see a little sort of crisscrossing on the ballot. And if that happens, it'll be from Republicans, not from Democrats. I do want to go back to the gubernatorial race just for a second on the Republican side, because I'm wondering of of these ex, ex, other factors with David Perdue and, and then some will say Vernon Jones um, possibly uh, being a factor as well. How are you seeing this right now, Fred? And what, and what have you noticed in terms of the campaigns and the messaging so far? So the Purdue campaign has been very aggressive and they're trying to force uh, Kemp into taking some extreme positions. Um, the governor has been more measured. Uh, we saw this week he introduced a version of, uh, of constitutional carry. So trying to expand gun rights um, 
to feed the base a little bit, but we haven't seen, at least in my, what I would consider very extreme legislation proposed by the governor for this session yet. So it looks like he's he's decided that he's going to take the tack of governing and being the same person that he has been. And Senator Purdue, or former Senator Purdue, is taking is going to try to outflank him to the right. Now, where Vernon Jones becomes a factor is that if he can pull anywhere around five percent of the vote, so we're not talking about anything that would normally catch attention. Uh, you know, five percent, three percent—it's not something people would normally pay attention to. But if he can do that, then that would be enough potentially to throw this into a runoff, which takes us back to 2018. Mm-hmm. Remember. The governor went into the runoff with the lieutenant governor, and he was far behind the lieutenant governor in terms of mm-hmm. votes. And Trump's endorsement, because the runoff is uh, – he, he, Oh, it propelled him. Yeah. It propelled him, absolutely, yeah. because you have – and the runoff of Republican primary – well, any primary runoff voter is even more of a partisan than your regular primary voter who's more of a partisan than a general election voter. And so when you think about this, if we get into – if he goes into a runoff, we could see just the reverse of what happened in 2018. So 2018, he was thrown lieutenant governor, and Trump, Trump endorsed him. He moved ahead in a, in a Republican primary in the middle of the summer. If it's him and David Perdue, then that gets really shaky for the governor, and I actually would probably give Perdue the odds on that one. Uh, so that's why Vernon Jones is significant. Again, not that he's going to win this election, not that he's going to get 10% of the vote, but if he gets into that 4 5 6% range of the vote, then it gets really difficult as it stands right now today, January 12th, for the governor to win without a runoff. Hmm. The voice you hear is Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks, and we're talking about these statewide races. I want to just go back to the Democrats for a second for Georgia Secretary of State. Um, some familiar names, obviously, John Ease, and we know B. Gwynn, B. Gwynn, but you know, Michael Owens, obviously out of Cobb County. Uh, what are you right. hearing? Well, what are you seeing? So, about what's, what stood out to you with these with these? And I'm not saying they're the top three, but I, uh, of the, I mean, they're the most notable names. Absolutely. So, so you know, Representative Wynn has managed to to secure a lot of support, a lot of endorsements, particularly in the Metro Atlanta area where the bulk of the votes are concentrated. So that that is certainly a strong point on her on her end. But the Democratic primary is over more than sixty percent of the Democratic primary is African American, mm-hmm. sixty, sixty-two. 63%. And so she's Asian American. You have two African Americans who are running in that. In you that think that's, that's so, going to be a factor? Do you think that's going to be a factor, Fred? It could be. And that's a lot of conversation with people is how can represent, what will Representative Wynn do to to appeal to African American voters across the state? Now, that might not be as much of a factor, you know, here in Atlanta, but when you get down into Southwest Georgia, South Georgia, Southeast Georgia, the coast, where, you, where the Asian population is a lot smaller, uh, that could be a factor. And so I, I, I think that's going to be very interesting. I do know all three candidates, so I want to say that. So I want to be clear that we're not, you know, we're not biased one way, one mm-hmm. way or another. Um, I just think it's going to be very interesting. And that's the question that people keep asking is, will she be able to appeal to African-American voters, period, but certainly well, outside of Metro Atlanta? Why does she have to appeal to African-American voters and someone like John Eves or Michael Owens don't have to appeal to white voters or Asian-American voters? Well, uh, it comes down to the percentage of the electorate that, that comprises that. So, again, the overwhelming majority, um, you can get us. We could see this year as high as two-thirds of the Democratic primary being African-American. And with Asian-American voters, they tend to be uh, 3 to 5% of the Democratic primary. So it's not it's not a necessarily a large chunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, when you look at it, aside from race, John but she's all, but, just but, but, uh, but Representative Wynn also is, has very— tight ties with Stacey Abrams. I mean, we, we've known that. She does. Mm-hmm. And she has a lot of African-American support, again, yeah. from the elected officials. So and so she's played it very smart. It's, it's going to be really interesting because you think about it. John Eves was the former chairman of Fulton County, Fulton County Board of Commissioners and mm-hmm. Fulton County, Fulton and DeKalb County represent the two largest blocks of Democratic votes in the well, state. Well, he's dropped his name in a lot of different races these last few years. And he's probably yes. listening and will probably be mad. But I mean, he keeps popping in and out. I mean, I'm just saying what's real well, well john that's rose who said that not me if you're listening let me try and throw me under the bus i ain't, I ain't afraid of johnny's what, what i say is what i say and i'm being fair i mean for, but for some voters when they see folks dropping in in different races i mean they're like okay make up your mind and that's a factor for them that ain't that ain't picking on john eves that's just the truth well, 
Oh, it is. It is. It is a factor. But we have seen people who've run for multiple offices win. I mean, uh, Councilwoman Keisha Waits has run for several different positions over the last 20 years. And she did just win a citywide election in, in, in the city of Atlanta. So you have that uh, that's out there. And you have, you know, see, we, we've seen that play out and factor in before. But I, I think that because of the support that Representative Wynn has, she certainly has the advantage going into this primary. Uh, but it's going to be really interesting to see how it play out, see it play out. Any names that we haven't mentioned in these statewide races that you are willing and bravely will mention on this program right now, even though we don't know if it's true? <laughs> So I'm hearing rumors, for example, that um, that uh, former congressman and Atlanta City Councilman Kwanzaa Hall might uh, throw his name in the hat for a statewide race. Um, and we've been hearing that for some time now. That was generally the speculation because, you know, he he won the seat uh, after John after Congressman Lewis passed away. Mm-hmm. So he was in Congress for a short period. Very before short congresswoman period of time. Williams, okay. right? um, and the seat that Congresswoman Williams is in now. So he might throw his name in the hat. Um, I think also we might there, there still might be some more movement, particularly when you look at, um, at the the other down ballot races. I saw mm-hmm. that the former Gwinnett board chair Everton Blair just announced he's running for superintendent of schools. Mm-hmm. I think we might also see there's a person Katrina McCollum Young over in Rockdale who used to be the head of the Georgia School Board Association who mm-hmm. who might get into that race for that. Um, I think also the Labor Commission, we might see, maybe we see someone, see a little movement there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I heard, and I'm not sure if this actually happened or not, but that uh, Representative Winford Dukes is going to run for uh, for Ag Commissioner. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's happened already. I heard so, that. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> yeah. So so that's a, so there's still quite a bit of movement. Now, here's the interesting thing that's important for your listeners to, to, to know this. But the legislative session started on Monday. So all of these people who are in the legislature are prohibited right now from raising money. Mm-hmm. And so we might see a flood of people drop out of the legislature so that they can focus on their race, particularly when we go back to the lieutenant governor's race, where you have three people in there. Uh-huh. So look, look, I, I went and looked at Charlie Bailey's last disclosure, which was uh, for, through June of last year. And he had about $480,000 on hand. Again, mm. he has to get permission to transfer that. Wow. But I would assume that he raised another 200000 while he was still, he and Jen Jordan were running. So if he has 600000 on hand and he can able to flip that over, these other, the legislature going to have to consider dropping out to, so they can raise it and keep up with that. Wow. Lots, of, lots to follow this year. Atlanta-based political strategist Fred X, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. I really do. Well, thank you for having me on. I love it. And just so you folks know, it was seven years ago on this day that Closer Look was born. Came on air. Some of y'all are happy about it. Some of y'all are not. (laughs) But we here at WABE are very proud of it, as well as City Lights with my sister Lois Reitzes. Listen, we're here for you, the community. This is what we do. This is why we do it for you all. Thank you for supporting us for seven years. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. A lot of folks throughout the years have made this program what it is today. Some have moved on. I miss them. Candace Wheeler, Grace Walker, Amelia Brock, Trevor Young. You know, we miss you all. Best of luck to you, everyone. Got a great team right now. We'll keep it going, folks, as long as you want us to. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Don't worry. Fresh Air is next. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.